Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. And we're back for an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and I made the quaintest, cutest mistake this morning. Are you ready to hear it? I ordered some groceries, and instead of ordering five bananas, I ordered five bunches. It looks like fucking Donkey Kong Country in here. <laughs> You're Shakita. That's me, yes. <laughs> I, I, I have no choice but to be Josephine Baker for Halloween. I'll have my cute banana peel skirt all ready for the boys. I don't even get through five bananas. Honestly, it's a mysterious fruit to me because I feel like it's the kind of thing you eat because it's a fruit with some integrity, so it like fills you up. But at the same time, is it just sugar? Like, does anybody get like ripped because they ate four bananas a day? I don't know. Again, it feels like Diddy Kong behavior. I love a banana, but yeah, I, I truly feel like bananas for me are the metaphorical representation for attempting to try something new. I feel like you will buy a bunch of bananas and sure. you'll, you'll have you'll, you'll eat one and you'll mm-hmm. be like, oh, that was actually good. I do like bananas because I love the taste of bananas. Uh, and then you'll have another one. The next day, maybe you'll have it. By the third day, <laughs> you just got dead bananas and fruit flies. No, that's interesting because I was actually wondering if anybody has ever loved a banana before or if they simply eat them because it's the food that's around. I you like know what I bananas. Mean? I love bananas. And I also used to make banana bread pre-pandemic oh my god that had never been done you were the only one (laughs) uh i loved my grandmother's like banana bread recipe not banana nut bread pure Mm. banana bread okay i don't want any (laughs) misdegenation with my banana bread (laughs) wow now we said it okay I also, I, 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 I like banana bread. Okay, this is such a strange topic to start on. It's not pop cultural, but anyway, bananas are on my mind. I also have a friend who was obsessed with, apparently in the 60s, when candy was banana flavored, it was based off a different variety of banana that's not everywhere anymore. Like now we have the Cavendish banana. That's the, the one that's, if you had a banana today, it's a Cavendish banana. But mm-hmm. she found the, I'm going to call it strain of bananas. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what species of banana, whatever. And tried making them in her backyard because it has a different kind of sweeter taste than what you're familiar with now. And I don't think she successfully mm. recreated that. Like she's Luther Burbank, but more um, of a um, pajama flavor to the banana. Yes. <laughs> Those were the first bananas. Yes. The originators of Bananas uh, Inc. Uh, Australian icons, by the way. Also, I mean, the, yeah, they I were had sort no of like, idea that they were Australian when they were beamed onto our television sets when we were kids. Like, did they have did they have Australian accents? I 
I, I don't actually know what their whole thing was. To me, they felt like if you found Teletubbies too intellectually stimulating, try the bananas and pajamas because <laughs> they'll keep it simple. <laughs> Republicans would definitely come after bananas and pajamas today. Oh, yeah. Well, what are they up to? They're yeah. naughty. You know, th- th- also they're matching. We find that a little suspicious. And what do they do when they unpeel? That's right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, that reminds me, by the way, here's another tangent, speaking of bananas. You know the album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, with the of, banana of album course, cover? Of course. I was just listening to that recently. They are the weirdest case of a band, or that album specifically, that has that is queer and nothing is gay about it. Like, they're really hard-bitten, straight men with a lady vocalist singing about things like heroin and, you know being disillusioned with life or whatever's going on in that album. But it's the proximity to Warhol that makes everything they do seem kind of cool in a queer way. Anyway, it was boggling my mind recently. I think it's, I think it's also like, that's a 1967 album. And like, I think that like a lot of that counterculture moment. Yeah. Yeah. Jinx. I think the (laughs) counterculture moment is what really sort of inspired a lot of queer shit anyway. There yeah. were there were that, big delineations then, you know. Everyone, everyone yes, was, you can everyone see was the path shooting diverting. up in New York. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that that was your option for creativity. Heroin was for everyone. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad we can come out and just take a stand on this podcast. It's such a nice feeling. Uh, uh, we have a fantastic show today. Uh, but before we get to it, I do want to mention the sad passing of a friend of ours kimberly eaton um we met her in west hollywood where i feel like thousands of gay men met her uh, she was unmistakable if you met her once you remembered her forever yes uh she tr- truly was the um white horse um, of west hollywood studio 54. <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> I, I mean i i mean i lived in la since 2009 kim uh uh, was just one of these pop culture superstar people. And in fact, you may have seen her pop culture knowledge at work. She was on VH1's World Series of Pop Culture in the uh, 2000s, where she was on the Almost Perfect Strangers team. And, and there were two seasons of that, and there was a team called that on the first season and the second season. I believe she's on the first season. But um, just the kind of person you would run into at a gay bar and uh, utterly ebullient, uh, full of life. And she just had the thing, as it pertains to this podcast she understood the humor in pop culture she understood the seriousness of it Mm -hmm. and she understood how it was such an amazing tool to get to know other people and like you could you would run into her and talk to her about anything it could be you know uh an old Faye Dunaway movie or it could be just an episode of tv you saw last night and uh she when I when I think of just the people I've had amazing times you know, reflecting on pop culture with she's just she's been up there. In fact, when we were putting this podcast together, we talked I, about that was her. It. We were like, it should be her. Yeah, you know, she's just somebody who knew everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, the perfect person to run into on like a Sunday um, when you're at a bar, you know. And uh, I feel like the actual the last time I did see her um, was two weeks ago at High Tops, which of course you know right uh and we we talked about That's, last which, time i saw her was there too at gay pride yeah, yeah. and we um we, t- we talked about renaissance you know so Ugh. uh of course i got one last piece of pop culture 
through her. Um, but she was a very good friend um, and also um, produced that um, Black People Like um, Freeform series that I did mm. um, last year. So, um, yeah, so incredibly smart and talented, and it's sad. Um, but I wanted to make a point of mentioning her today because she loved listening yeah. to this podcast and she would text me all the time too um about the shit we said on it so even which even uh, to agree and disagree of course oh right no which by the way again is like appreciate your pop culture friends the ones who not only know their shit but are like actually here's where you're fucking wrong you know it's just like that's like the thrill of a lifetime there there is not a second one of this person so think of who the kim eaten in your uh, life is and if it's us well that would be incredibly flattering because she fucking ruled <laughs> um speaking of people who were fucking amazing uh who we're talking about this week uh Anne Hage. i can't i mean like the i mean i hate to follow up that conversation with another conversation about someone being like one of a kind whatever but man we'll get into it i i find the Anne Hage death utterly overwhelming i've been watching her old movies uh somewhat obsessively again i hope you guys have too yeah um we will get into Anne hayes we're also going to revisit um a segment that we always enjoy just where we'll talk about what we've been consuming lately that isn't um renaissance i've managed to do something beyond listen to the Beyonce album i promise wow yeah, uh, I, you've exceeded expectations. Yeah, uh, I've I've even gone back to scripted television. Let me tell you, I did too. And by the way, I think I'm less likely to do that than you are. <laughs> yeah. so. Uh, so we'll get into that. Plus, our guest this week uh, is really an icon um, who I'm shocked we have not had on the show yet. But Connie Britton is joining us today. I feel like. Anytime you turn around, one, Connie Britton is doing something new. And two, always exceptional. My God, I know we are both Spin City viewers. Like, it could have just been that alone. And yet here we are, you know, decades later, loving her on the White Lotus for which she is nominated. Uh, she is Emmy nominated. Yeah, there, there's, this is, is going to be another one of those people where um, we will get um, DMs about things we didn't bring up. Because Connie Britton has literally done so fucking much. Right. No, she was in This Is Where I Leave You with Jane Fonda and Tina Fey. We could just talk about that the entire time. And yet we will talk about the many projects for which she is award nominated. I could ask her about the fighting Fitzgeralds with Brian Dennehy. Right. Yes. Uh, the, the Brothers McMullen. Yeah, I mean, should we just list her credits? Is that our podcast now? <laughs> Isn't that we just doing interviews anyway? Right. <laughs> Here, we went to your Wikipedia and here's what you've been in. Cool, right? Now let's move on to the scandal section. <laughs> we'll end with personal life. Yeah. All right, we will be back with more Keep It. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand... That was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. 
And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire... Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I think it's time to check in on what we've been consuming lately because, as I said before, I've finally gone back to scripted TV. I think that the beginning of the pandemic, the first time we got locked down, March 2020, mm-hmm. I was reading. Uh, I was like, I was all up in Criterion. Like, I was, yeah. I felt like I was consuming culture. I was doing foreign films. I was like, I really felt like, okay, if we're going to be here for a little bit, I might as well like get some things taken care of that I've always been to read or watch. And I felt like I was really like, my my synapses were going off with like things to talk about. I felt like we had like lovely conversations about culture um, yes. around the time that that happened. And now, I'm picturing you wearing a beret as you do all of these things, by the way. A foreign film, reading a book. Well, you know I love running through the streets uh, with a baguette sticking out of a brown yes. paper bag. That's just my vibe. <laughs> um, right. But lately, all I do is watch Bravo. I would say I had <laughs> just been watching Big Brother. So. Yeah, and Seinfeld. And Jeopardy on Pluto, Pluto TV, which, by the way, continues to be a vortex into which I am sucked. <laughs> I do still watch Days of Our Lives every day, as our listeners know, but I don't consider that um, scripted TV anymore. 
It's just I feel like I feel like the actors just show up and say lines that they've been saying for thirty years, and somehow it um, melts into a story. Uh, I yeah, it's like church to you. Yeah. yeah, it's a ritual. You know, you go there to get um, a, a sacrament or two, and then you move on. You don't you don't ingest it as a, a credible uh, storytelling. Except now, uh, I've finally been able to consume TV that's been written um, <laughs> by actual smart people. Well, some of it. Uh, I have been watching Pretty Low Liars Original Sin. Which, every time I read that title, I'm like, who dipped into the Cinemax universe? With, <laughs> who dipped into the Harlequin romance universe? Uh, it doesn't sound like Krista Allen should be in it with someone rubbing, like, ice over her breasts. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of ice on breasts in not just Cinemax, but like on Oxygen Network late at night, you'd see something at 1 a.m. where it's like, ooh, this robe slipped off me and you can see the hint of an areola if you squint at the right-hand corner of your screen. Can our straight listeners let us know if that's a thing? Or, yeah. or you know, like... Softcore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like, like do, do... Or, you know, like our... Any of our, like, female listeners as well. You know, like, do, do, do you get off with people rubbing ice uh, on your nipples, is that a thing? It's very, it's very um, body of evidence. Very yeah. uh, erotic thrillers <laughs> of the early nineties. I feel like one time I tried the Ricky Martin um, "Living La Vida Loca" candle wax, wax. like on, your, on a chest thing, and I don't think that goes over well. No, I, I, I mean, also there, there's something about the lighting in that video where it just candle wax fits into the sepia Latin moment there. Whereas normally wax is just something hot that you shouldn't be holding in your hands. <laughs> um, well, Pretty Little Liars original sin was my gateway to scripted TV. Okay. Uh, so I have been watching other things, but I do want to shout out the fact that uh, if you've been following um, people online, sort of memorializing uh, Riverdale because it's coming to an end uh, this year, and this is also created by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, who is sort of like a rad, um, look at me sounding like Lewis, sort of a rad, like, gay playwright. And I used to see his shit mm. um, in Chicago um, back when we were in undergrad. Um, he had, like, this really funny play called, like, Satan, uh, I Love You, um, which makes all the sense now when you see Riverdale and this show. But it is just as bonkers as you thought. Oh, I was going to say, you said gay playwright, and I thought Terrence McNally. Terrence McNasty. That's what Riverdale <laughs> is. Um, the, I, I, I want to describe um, a scene in this show. It is, it is so, um, it's so passions-esque in that it sets up... Um, this is Pretty Little Liars you're talking yes. about? It's so okay. passions-esque in that it has weird like cliffhangers within dialogue where you think a person's gonna say something um but they say something completely else and i feel like that is the like hallmark of camp writing sure there, there's a um ballet teacher named madame giri of course uh for the phantom of the opera fans uh who's working with this like black uh ballet dancer uh in um the ballet dancer is like flirting with a boy in her class and i want to tell you that madame jury pulls her to the side and she says um 
if you're going to be a dilettante, you'll never get into Alvin Ailey. And then the black dancer says, what makes you think I want to get into Alvin Ailey? Is it because I'm black? I want to go to ABT. And then Madame Jerry responds, no, I don't think ABT would accept you if they knew the truth about your scoliosis. And then they flash back <laughs> to this young, like, black girl with, like, a, like, thing, like, harness, like, things strapped around her as a kid to reveal that she um, is battling scoliosis. I love the idea of the the board at Alvin Ailey sitting around and being like, oh, she doesn't have scoliosis, does she? Thought that. <laughs> Or pardon me, at American Ballet Theater or whatever. Misty Copeland's like, oh, don't don't try me with that scoliosis. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a fully, fully ridiculous show. Uh, and it was just sort of what I needed to um, snap me back into watching um, non-reality um, TV. Oh, yeah. Did you also watch The Bear? I watched about six episodes of that. I have not. And people are going insane over it. Yeah, they're wild. Uh, I mean, I'll say that I, I was sort of pressured into it because it's set in Chicago mm -hmm. and um, it's about the rigor of running a little uh, Chicago restaurant. And the guy who runs the restaurant has like a bit of a, a dark past that they keep piecing together. His his demeanor is very Casey Affleck in Manchester by the sea. Okay. Like there's a softness to the hardness here, mm -hmm. but we don't know where both of those come from. And he's and burned his kids alive. Right. Well, actually, there is a, like a fire storyline. So anyway, you never know what's going to be happening there. Um, but he runs this restaurant. Ioetta Beery starts working there and she's like, she's amazing, by the way. Yeah, she's really good in it. She's really good in it. Um, I will just say this. Having been being from Chicago, the accents don't really remind me of Chicago. I feel like they could have done more to get the really aggravating things we do. And I'm talking about like the way I say the word college or cafeteria or the way like milk turns into milk sometimes like that. I think we could have paid more attention to that. But otherwise, this show, which is very tense in a softy brothers way, I called it so softy fat acid heat when I was uh, texting about it with friends. But... <laughs> For for it being that tense, I found it went down pretty easy. And I think it's because they're half-hour episodes. Um, and I'm always for a half-hour drama. I don't know when we wrote the rule that dramas have to be an hour long. But um, so far, uh, I'm enjoying it. And there's like fun little cameos in there, which I, I guess the show is obsessed with not spoiling. They're not so radical that you wouldn't believe it. It's not like, oh, my God, you know, whatever. Uh, Sandra Bullock is the, uh, you know, <laughs> the... the, uh, the the James Beard scholar who's there or whatever. It's, not, it's nothing like that. Is it Molly but, um, Ringwald one of them? Yes, Molly Ringwald's in it. She, I've only seen her in, uh, I think, one scene so far, but she was great. Okay. Was I great. mean, she's been in Riverdale, so. Yes. Right. At, oh, at, nice tie-in. At, at, at this point, you're not breaking new ground, Hulu. <laughs> but that's also a cute cameo because obviously she's associated with Chicago-tinged cinema through yeah. John Hughes. Well, I feel like that show is mostly populated with a lot of New Yorkers and sort of like Boston accents. And I feel like if you're shooting a show set in Chicago, half the cast should be populated with people from like Steppenwolf. Right. I want people who have been burned by an acting exercise with Gary Sinise. I want to know. <laughs> I want to see him. Uh, and maybe they're all on Chicago PD at this point.
actually. Right. Yeah. Or Chicago, yeah, the 80 of those that probably still exist. You know, Chicago Delicatessen or whatever they're on now. Tracy Letts is turning out the scripts, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember when he wrote Superior Donuts? What a weird little life Tracy Letts has had. Speaking of acting exercises in general, the thing that has actually been um, encompassing uh, my weekend has been the rehearsal. Okay, which I, I here's the thing about me, and I don't know that I've ever said this on the show. We're obviously in a universe where a lot of drama comes from quote unquote cringe. Like mm -hmm. that's a part of scripted television we love and unscripted television. I can handle so fucking little of it that when even Nathan Fielder appears in front of me, I can't be guaranteed. I won't jump out of my skin within seconds. And so I put it off. I don't know if I'll be watching this show, but I know I kind of should. So I also can't stand um, things that people would call cringe. I never even used that word, but like, I'm a no, kind of I hate kind of, the word. I'm a kind of person who would I get attached to a character and something uncomfortable is happening to them on screen. Like, I have to look away. I fast forward it sometimes um, because things like really do make me uncomfortable. And especially like I can't watch like um, Scott's Tots, that office episode that's so fucking uncomfortable, like shit like that, like yeah. does not appeal to me. But this show, maybe because it's so weird, uh, is how it also manages to be like very sort of like sweet and heartwarming because mm. I see it as I, I initially thought that it was just this weird sort of acting exercise. Um, and the, the premise of it is that Nathan Fielder um, of Nathan for you, which I actually never really watched. I've seen a few episodes yeah. with my brothers and I have to say I was laughing so hard. I, I'm ashamed. Like, it, it was like it was pouring out of me. It was like it was in a way like you had been stabbed and laughs fell out of you. I'm going to actually visit Nathan for you now because I'm obsessed with this series. But the concept of the rehearsal is that, you know, he's helping people um, do something that they've always wanted to do in their life. Um, but they rehearse the process with actors who look like the people they're going to be talking to before they do it. And the extra layer of that is that before he talks to these people, he rehearses every possible interaction he could have with that person before he even meets with them. So it's 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 oh layer God. on layer of that. And it's so weird, but it's also like it's also very moving. And I mean, I know we did talk about Kim earlier this episode. I was like, maybe that's why I was in the right headspace for this. I mean, I was full on sobbing at the end of the first episode. Jesus just because, Christ. And I think the first episode would appeal to you because it is, the concept is there's this man um, who is really good at trivia and he's in a trip, like a uh -huh. bar, he's in a bar trivia team. Um, but when he met them, they were all uh, they all had master's degrees uh, and he just went along with that and said that he had one, too. So he's lied about having a master's degree for years. Uh, and like a friend, like keeps sending him like um, job postings, but you need a master's degree for it. Uh, and he feels like he's just been lying to these people um, for years um, and he wants to come clean. And that's what the pilot is. Oh, um, wow. But um, I would say that this show is not what you expect. It's. Um, this is really a spoiler, but it's serialized in the okay. sense that the next episode is this woman who um, wants to experience motherhood 
And so over the course of two months, um, she's raising like real people's babies who are like swapped out like every other night um, for another child that's aged up. So she's experiencing like birth to age 18. But oh wow, it's 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 a little bit Billy Madison, yeah, yeah going through all the grades. Yeah. But he gets involved in it, and then as he's doing rehearsals with other people, he keeps coming back to this, and it twists into more about being a show that's sort of about like him trying to learn how to have real human interactions with people. Because mm, he has a very puzzling sort of yeah. demeanor when when he's talking with people, it feels like there's no emotions entering the fray. He's he's entirely zeros. He's he's broken down social interaction into zeros and ones. Yes, it's really sort of like uh, breaking down the Truman Show and turning it into like a te- like a, mm. a comedy where like Truman though is the one running his own series. I would say the highlight of it is episode four, which like completely blew my mind and might be one of the best things i've seen on television all year it is him in an acting class with actors who are going to be playing people in the rehearsals oh okay that which that kind of reminds me of episodes of nathan for you too. yeah like there's yeah so um okay that's i'm thrilled to hear it first you were the person wearing the beret then you brought up the truman show and now ed harris is wearing the beret <laughs> Classic. Look, if you could win a supporting actor Oscar for just like being perched on your hand with a beret, it should have gone to Ed Harris. But um, uh, now I assume you have consumed since we're using the word consumed, which makes us sound like monsters. But I'm thrilled by that. We're Susie Orman. Uh, Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Wow. Good reference. Uh, The Megan Thee Stallion album. I have. I have. I, I, I love it. I, I love the album as much as I am confused by the title. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like like maybe she had 75 potential titles, and this was about the 60th one, it's and like, then they settled with that. Who's Traumazine and who? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Traumazine, not really a, a successful pun, and also trauma, as it pertains to pop culture, should only be uttered by Jamie Lee Curtis, who I think is the only person who's ever pronounced it correctly. <laughs> uh, I have been listening to this album, and I really enjoy it. I enjoy the fact that it feels... It's very straightforward. Yeah. Like, she picks, like... like sh- She's like... Uh, what's the lyric on one of the songs? This song, Anxiety, which is about exactly that. And she'll say things like, even bad bitches have a bad day. And it goes through that. It's it's very... um, Pedestrian sounds like I'm I'm dissing it, but it's straightforward it's, yeah. it's her being like here's this problem i have i'm not overselling my devastation or whatever uh, uh uh trauma if you will but just saying here's something that sucks and i love the nonchalance of it weirdly i've never thought this about her before but obviously even though the way she uh raps is like extremely like hard-hitting like spitting rhymes at you mm-hmm. there's like a laid-back quality that reminds me of like older rappers that reminds me of mc light or something mm-hmm. yeah i mean i remember when plan b first came out uh she debuted at coachella and as we were in the audience watching listening everyone around me kept saying like that felt like old little kim yeah, uh-huh. And uh, even, the, like, there's even, like, you know, like, a Biggie sample on this, on Consistency, one of my favorite um, songs on it. Um, yeah, I just really like that this feels like, 
This is her second studio album, and it feels uh, like a little bit like Lindsay Lohan's second studio album, a little more personal, raw. <laughs> Wait, now what's on that one? Is that I want daughter to come first? Daughter and father. Be loaded. Oh, daughter and fa- oh my god. <laughs> we really just kept giving her the mic. We're like, go ahead. Um, I want to come first from Herbie Fully Loaded. I am sure I brought up how disgusting that line is. But anyway. <laughs> I also love that everyone is in a um, dance music headspace because she has yes. her, fa- her fantastic new single, Her, has a hilarious chorus where it's just literally it's just her saying, I'm her, 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 her. I'm she, 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 she. <laughs> 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 which is which is pandering to the gays. Right, right. Uh, I, I can think of several opportunities in which I will be using that <laughs> to express my own feelings. Um, also, of course, on this album, she has that collaboration with Dua Lipa, which uh, I'm a fan of that song. I like that single. It's pretty good. Not like, you like the uh, beat? top tier Dua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I'm not turning it off. Yeah, But you're not turning it on either. See, there we are. Yes. That's actually most of the post-Future Nostalgia Dua Lipa for me. I feel like we haven't started a new era yet, so it's a lot of, okay. Like that song yeah, with Calvin like, Harris. Potion. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like, and by the way, I love the idea of potions. So yeah. I, should, I was like the ideal customer for this song. Of course. And but you prefer, number, like, all right. you prefer number nine. Right. To get back to Sandra Bullock. Yes. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the, the album's good. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm also excited that she's um, writing hooks, finally. Yes. Yeah. Oh, were you concerned about that? You know, like I, she's always been great at spitting. She's always had, like, a really funny, like, hard-hitting line. But I feel like, you know, as far as songs, like, the hooks weren't always there. And I feel like this is more of a fully formed um Megan, she's maturing on this album, which is what you always want from an artist. And this is also, you know, in the midst of like her dispute with her label, 1501 Entertainment. And I believe that this is the last thing that she owes them. So uh, I Mm. always love when an artist is like feuding with their label and they're like, well, here's some shit that you can have. Uh, Prince. um, Oh, the the slave on the cheek? Yeah. Um, Madonna. Um, which, by the way, for people who aren't of a certain age, like, like us, um, before, before streaming, when an artist had, um, contractual obligations to release albums for their label, that is why so many of our, um, pop stars of yesteryear have, um, 5,000 greatest hits albums. Oh, right. Yeah. There's no need to release right. you that. collecting them. There's no need to release a Greatest Hits album now because it's all right there. No, I, which I feel bad about. I, I used to like having a Greatest Hits album in a way, like uh, especially if, if it added something extra. You know, Madonna on Immaculate Collection, you got like Justify My Love and Rescue Me. Mm-hmm. Or uh, on um, Design of a Decade by Janet, you got Runaway, which is my favorite Janet song. Um, but there was just something about like 
getting up. Sometimes the greatest thing an artist puts out is their greatest hits. I'm a huge fan of Till Tuesday, the Amy Mann band from the 80s. And their greatest hits is basically all you need, even though I like all three of their albums. But that's just it. They released only three albums. So why wouldn't you just own the greatest hits? You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of was the precursor to the um, this is Spotify um, playlist for every artist that's up there. Now, yes. Right. You know, like it was it was a playlist, basically. But that's how I got into so many people as well. Oh, to- no, please. I have such fond memories of like strolling through Best Buy and being like, all right, I'll pick up the best of this is the name that's coming to mind. Laura Nero. Will I um, end up liking her? Yes. Now I'll buy six of her albums. As my, as, as uh, I remember once my brother, Mark, he bought uh, the Immaculate Collection. I was an obsessive, you know, Madonna fan all the, my whole life. He's like, whatever, I'll dip into this. And then he goes, wait a minute, I just learned these aren't the original album versions. He goes, looks like I'm buying those too. Yeah, his quote was, you're telling me Like a Prayer doesn't have lasers in it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I, I love a Greatest Hits remix album too. Right, well, that's what she served us. She's like, I'm not giving you the originals. Please, those albums are still out. Um, Speaking of new music though, what do you think of the new um, Rick James sampling Nicki Minaj song? As a barb, I plead the fifth. <laughs> wow, that bad. I was kind of into it at first. But it's it's one of those things where, and I did feel this way about Anaconda. Well, I don't know, actually, in retrospect. In retrospect, the Anaconda. Song is so much better than this. I, I just like Rick James Super Freak is one of the slays of all time. That, that Like when he came up with that song, it was so raunchy and so like. I don't know, irreverent feeling in a way like that mix was very new. It's sort of, you know, it, it was around the beginning of Prince too. And it's that kind of feeling like it could be this raunchy and this good and funky and funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to hear that song again is great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that she added to the song. I will say that uh, I appreciated Anaconda only and in retrospect i i love it even more now i think it's one of her best singles uh because she was reclaiming uh baby got back yeah there's a wit to that as yeah. as you mm-hmm. know it uh it became a white song <laughs> a traditional white celebratory anthem i yes. mean listen baby got back is uh stuck on um a Caucasian jukebox with this is how we do it and return of the Mac. Okay. Like <laughs> we're never oh, do you think we're, return of the Mac got claimed. Yeah. <laughs> we're never getting those songs back. Uh, <laughs> which is, which, no, is, you're which right. is fine. Cause this is how we do it. It's actually a very bad song. I don't know about that, but I see what you mean. Also baby got back really became white lady karaoke. Yeah. You know, it just happens sometimes. And, uh, and listen, like uh, a friend actually produced um, the Super Freaky Girl, and I enjoy it. I heard it out in West Hollywood, and I enjoyed it more. Um, you know, it's 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 fun for the clubs. You know, it's it's um, exactly what you want to hear when you when you want to hear the sample, and then you you mm-hmm. know you want to hear like a Nikki beat over it. It's just sort of like okay, cool, this is fun. But in terms of her career, um, it's not moving the needle it's yeah. just sort of there and i caught and i feel like she's released a lot of singles lately and i'm wondering if an album is coming or if we're in some weird stasis where one of these has to hit and become number one and then we'll get an album mm. because as so a sagittarius as a sagittarius pop star she is obsessed with the charts right 
I, I do. I want to say just in general, I am generally appreciative of celebrities and artists who are obsessed with stats. And this is isn't quite uh, uh, an entertainer, but Serena Williams and that profile that just came out mm-hmm. talking about how she was obsessed with like one by one beating like all the names that come up in that article. She's like. Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, that each one of those increments meant something different to her. I just love the, I mean, there's no, we don't have another word for this. Um, and I, I'm not using this in a derogatory way. It's something I would say about myself in terms of uh, an obsession with statistics, pettiness, you know, just like <laughs> it means something to be that person. It means yeah. something different to be that person, you know, keeping score, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, she's earned that. Right. No, right. By all means. No, do it. We love it, you know. Yeah. But it's it's so different than like interviewing an actress. Like we'll talk to Connie Britton. I'm sure she's like, I don't even know who I'm nominated against this year. Or like you never talk to an actress nominated for an Oscar and she's like, "Well, I'm so fucking glad I beat Vanessa fucking Redgrave or whatever." You know, it's just so it, it it's it's different in sports. I honestly wish more actors were like that. Your lips to God's ears, please come on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Please come and talk about who you still fucking hate. Yeah, from right. ni- from 1983. No, actually, I-, I can think of one quote that makes me think of this, which was, I think I was reading a magazine. Th- this wasn't a quote that I saw wide online, but Rooney Mara talked about the uh, the year she was nominated for Carol. So that would have been supporting actress. And she lost to Alicia Vikander in The Danish Girl. And that was a year where Alicia Vikander won everything. And she said, regarding that Oscar run, she goes, it's like you're celebrating somebody else's birthday for months. I'm like, wow. Yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. That makes sense to me. <sighs> Alicia Vikander. Not my Tomb Raider. No. <laughs> 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 is she your Irma Vep? Is she your Irma Vep? That's kind of a fun show. You know what? Uh, that's next on my list. Okay. I, I, seen... I will say Maggie Chung is the Irma yes. Vep, but she, Alicia acquitted herself nicely. I had a whole um, conversation about this series with our friend Chris, uh, and I realized oh, well, he won't shut up about uh, it. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 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 his carpenters. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> I'll just put down this Carpenter's memoir I have next to me right now. Um, but I realized in him talking about like it's it's based on a thing, based on another thing. But I've seen the original thing that Irma Vet is based on the, the oh French like from film, the thirties, the, the French film The yeah. Vampires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm I'll ease my way into the Irma Vet um, cinematic universe. Which is apparently deep, yes. Yeah. All right. When we're back, Connie Britton joins us. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. 
Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. She is the star of such iconic series as Friday Night Lights, American Horror Story, Nashville, a personal fave of mine, and White Lotus, for which she is nominated for an Emmy. We are thrilled to welcome to keep it the legendary Connie Britton. Thanks. What a nice introduction. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're so thrilled you're here. Legendary. Yeah, that's you. Um, Now, Connie, we just had Jesse Tyler Ferguson here recently who was nominated for a Tony, and he, he did end up winning that Tony, but he was nominated against everybody he was in this play with. And I was wondering, you're nominated for the White Lotus. I've never seen somebody nominated against so many people they are in the same fucking thing with. Me neither. And and my question is, is that thrilling? Or are you worried like somebody else in the cast will have to win? And then do you have to fabricate an especially proud face for that moment if somebody else wins? Like what's going through your head? (laughs) You know what? I'll tell you. First of all, I've never been in this situation either. Um, but it's, and so it's like, oh my gosh, but it's, and you know, you can, you can ask all kinds of questions about like, it seems like maybe they left some people out from some other shows. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm like, (laughs) that doesn't seem quite fair. But at the same time, I'm also like, but you know, we're the ones who get the benefit of this, like just gift of these award nominations. And the truth of the matter is, I love every single one of these cast members. I root for every single one of them. Like, it doesn't feel competitive to me. It actually feels like, um, truly, it feels like a a testament to the show and to the real nature of the show, which was so collaborative. You know, this, it was just, we were all in it together in such a major way. And, and, Honestly, anything I, at least in my experience, anything that's good is that it is a true mm-hmm. collaboration like that. And you just like get in with each other and under each other's skin and live there, you know? Um, but I really see the, the being in the same category with my fellow cast members as a real way of honoring the collaborative nature of what this show is was and is and i will be not fabricating but truly (laughs) truly ecstatic for whichever cast if if a cast member ends up winning i mean we also have two other excellent actresses in that category i'll be thrilled for any of them and that's the way i always feel honestly about being nominated like listen i've been in this business long enough to know we are all out there doing the best we can and really working hard. And I have found it is so much better to support my fellow actresses and to know that we all have something to contribute than to be competitive with them. So also, quite frankly, every time I've ever been nominated, I get there and my shoes are so uncomfortable. I suddenly dread, like, what if I win? I won't be able to walk up on stage. So there's that, too. But I, I really, I really feel like it's 
it's just, it'll be, it'll be exciting. And, and but it's kind of like my goal in life to support my people. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not my fellow, you know, somebody from my cast, still my fellow actresses and, you know, my, you know, the actors from our show too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about um, supporting other actors you've worked with too, I feel like you've had this um, distinct sort of like um, career where you've worked with a lot of younger actors, you know, specifically from like Friday Night Lights. um, And then also, you know, working with Hayden on Nashville. And now this, you know, what is it like working with um, younger actors? where you can do you sort of sense like an actor who's like really going to like take off and like can they really have sort of like a spark when you're in a scene with them because i feel like so many of the younger actors from friday night lights have became like stars after that you know and then you're on white lotus um right as like um sydney sweeney is like exploding right i know i know you know i the first time I really had that experience was on Friday Night Lights. And that was kind of the first time that both Kyle and Chandler, Kyle Chandler and I realized like, oh, where are the old people? <laughs> and these are the young people. I'd always, we've always been the young people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we'd always been sort of, or like the ingenue or whatever. So it was the first experience of, oh, oh, we're the ones who I guess have the quote unquote wisdom and they're kind of just fresh out of the gate. And I remember having a conversation with Pete Berg when we were doing Friday Night Lights and him saying, boy, I would not want the pressure of being this young and having this kind of a role and this kind of exposure out in the world. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, envy that for any of these kids like that's a lot to carry that's a lot to manage and so in front in the case of friday night lights like it was a great it was a great environment for it because we kyle and i really like we're very intentional and also that's just how we are but we were like we're keeping it real we're you know like we're the focus is on the thing that we're making the thing that we're doing and it's not we we were so far removed from like the hollywood and the business of it all and I just think that really helps a lot. Um, but it's it's interesting, you know, for instance, c- comparing that experience to the White Lotus experience, because when I met C- Sydney on this, I mean, it, it, it's like that this generation, they're so like capable at such a young age. Like she, I had never seen anything like it. Like she she's so kind of empowered and already has so many ideas going and like irons in the fire and focused, you know, and it it was a different kind of, and yet at the same time, she was so reverent to me, like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be working with you and whatever. And I'm like, really girl? Cause you got your shit together. You know what I mean? Like I, I was like that. I, I, I was, I, I sort of felt a little bit like I have nothing to offer you. I have things to learn from you. Um, you know, but I, but I also really appreciated sort of her, that she still has her, her innocence and her like youthfulness and her connection to home and all of those things that are really important to keep you grounded. Um, 
But it's funny. I remember we were shooting the scene in White Lotus where uh, the girls, um, Sydney's character and Brittany's character are like doing drugs, like in the hotel room. And they like had to ask Mike White how to do the various things that they were doing. And he's like, what is wrong with your generation? You're supposed to be off doing <laughs> drugs. And instead, you're becoming moguls. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was so interesting because I was like, yeah, wow, man, that's really different. <laughs> like, they just have a really different headspace. But um, it's also exciting because they're uh, they're going to they're going to hopefully take over the world. And with any luck, let's hope they make it better. Um. It- uh, my question about the White Lotus promoting it, is it a nightmare to promote something where you can't talk about what happens on it? Because now when I look back on the White Lotus, all I can think about is what the, I mean, aside from, you know, the great performances and stuff, what the ending finally ended up being. Like, that's when I talk about the show, like, oh, can you believe that happened? Whatever. Is it daunting to do press when the slightest misstep can give away the entire reason we're watching the show, for example? No, it's funny. I, I never really feel that way. I, I think the important thing is to have it be made really clear, like what you can say and what you can't say and what, what is, you know, being exposed out there amongst critics or whatever. Um, I, the more, the more I know about how that marketing is working, the more comfortable I feel about it. Mm. Um, you know, and it, it, it is hard, but I, I don't, I think I've always kind of had a relationship with the press and sort of with the public anyway, where I'm like, I don't, I, I don't try to dis, I don't want to disclose too much personally. I don't want to disclose too much in terms of story. You know, I love, I think, I think mystique and, um, mystery and, and, or privacy are really valuable and um, uh, are, are very strong currency across the board, you know? And I think that includes when you're promoting a show. And uh, so I, I actually like, I, I kind of enjoy that. Um, oh. You know, it's funny, like um, I was with uh, Sydney the other night and she was being asked about this new Marvel thing that she's doing. And she was like, I'm so stressed out about it. I can't say anything. Like, I'm literally afraid if I say one single thing about it, you know, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And I, and I thought to myself, well, that, that's not a world that, I mean, like, I, I've never been in that situation before. That's a whole, that's a whole other level um, that, you know, I have not had to deal with before. But um, it, it's a, that's a lot. And going back to your other question about sort of the age youth thing, it's like, I do think that if I were in that situation, because I've kind of come up in a world where I, I, I was never disclosing that much anyway, you know, I didn't come up where we, where we had so much social media and the internet and all that. So now like, that's the other thing, these kids, you know, they think that they have to expose everything about themselves Mm. and everything about what they're doing. And so to be put in a position in Sydney's case, like, that Marvel movie, it must feel very stressful because she can't, she, she can't expose that. And for me, I'm kind of used to it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Uh, I want to ask about, um, 
one of my favorite roles of yours, uh, Spin City, which I used to watch. Duh. Yeah, like I, iconic oh, show. Oh, that's an oldie uh, but a goodie. I truly iconic show that I I I used to watch it. You know, like every night uh, as a kid because it was in reruns uh, at a certain point. I don't even know that I saw the show. Uh, as it initially oh, aired, but uh, reruns, I really got addicted to it. Um, do you look back like fondly on that series? I mean, I felt like, you know, working with Michael J. Fox at that time, too, um, must have been such a joy. But then also, you know, you were the last role, you know, before he had to take a break because of his um, Parkinson's. Well, thank you for asking about that because, gosh, that, you know, that was the first, that was my first real TV job. Um, and I had done, I'd done a guest star on Ellen, on the Ellen show. Remember the Ellen show? She, yeah. When she oh, had yes. a sitcom. She had, it was a sitcom. And then I got um, Spin City and that was my first sort of like regular. And I was so green. I mean, I hadn't really even worked in front of, I, all my background was in theater. So I hadn't really worked in front of the camera even before, but I was, I, I grew up watching sitcoms and I also, because I came out of the theater, I'm like, it's going to be just like the theater. There's a live audience, which of course it wasn't. There are also three cameras and walking and a whole different, you know, it's <laughs> a completely different beast. But I, um, that was, I, I, I look back at that as such an incredible, um, you know, education for me in terms of just working with the best of the best and um, working in front of a camera and working in comedy and working on film, you know. Um, and, you know, to be able to do that with Michael J. Fox and that incredible group of actors and and Gary David Goldberg, mm. um, you know, they were the greats. And uh, I, I really look at that time as my the time where I got to learn so much on the job about act, about acting in front of a camera because I'd never done it before. Really, I mean, I had like my I did this this movie, The Brothers McMullen, which was this tiny little independent film, which was, was sort of my big break. But like that was like my my real sort of education in being in front of the camera. And working with such I, that group of actors is will always be, you know, they really for me they set the bar on what it is to be in an ensemble and what it is to be in truly truly collaborative environment. And I think, you know, especially because we were working with Michael at the time, and he kept it secret for for several years on that show. And then when it finally, you know, he finally told us that he had Parkinson's and working, you know, being a support for him through that and all of us sort of coming together because it's like this was his burden, but it was something that we all wanted to share with him and support him through. And um, it really, you know, it just it just created a lot of my values working on that show so i i was i will always be so grateful for it there obviously still are a few you know popular multicams out there but there really is something about the art form itself and spin city where it's like every single one of those 
cast members, including you, like radiates like positivity. Like, I don't know, like the, it's like the Mary Tyler Moore show. Like every single one of them needs to be my best friend on a different day. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you think you create that? Like, like I think of Barry Boswick and like, I have a smile on my face, you know? Oh my gosh. I know. I, same. Like, I still think Michael Boatman. Do you guys remember oh, Michael Boatman? Oh, love. Like, also on no. Celebrity Mall. Also yes. on Celebrity Mall with Kathy Griffin. Yes. <laughs> really? Okay. Yes. I, yeah. I, you know, I still get um, his, I haven't seen them in years, but he's, his kids have been sending, still send me their graduation. I just got the his kids like graduation announcement with the picture. And it's so cute because like, you know, he had those kids after, or maybe, Maybe they had one like while we were shooting the show. But anyway, it's like, you know, children are now grown up. But these are those. You're right. There was something. That's a great point. Like, because there was something about all those sitcoms growing up that that really that was what raised me. Mary Tyler Moore. I love Lucy. um, That girl. Oh, Marlo um, Thomas, of course. Marlo Thomas. You know, those shows were my inspiration for wanting to become an actress. And so, you know, and when I kind of came up and started getting into the business, you know, there was a lot of like, oh, you don't want to do, you know, there was still a very big split between film and television. And it's like, you you know, TV was somehow less than, but I never felt that way. My dream was to be on a sitcom. So, um, you know, I, 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 and I think that you're right. There was something about the, the hopefulness and the joy and, um, you know, a a certain perspective on how, you know what? It's fucking humor guys. We don't have, (laughs) we're not making, we are not making comedy like we used to, and we need it so desperately. And I don't know what has happened in the landscape. I mean, obviously so much has happened in the landscape. I mean, back when we were making spin city, we had, you know, upward of, 20 or 25 million viewers a week, you know, because this was network television. That's all there was. You just don't have that many people, that many eyeballs on one show at one time ever anymore, Mm. ever. And I don't know what's happened. Now we've got algorithms and all the rest of it. And somehow comedy is really taking a backseat. And in order to have comedy now, it's got to be super edgy and super like, or dark or, you know, and, and yeah, I, cutting. Just, and mm-hmm. it's really, you know, yeah. And it's like, cause I, I've, I have a production company and I really want to try to get more comedy out there. And like, I also grew up watching romantic comedy, you know, films as well. And it's like, they don't make them anymore either. Those, be- those amazing, you know, Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. They're just, it's just so rare to find something like that now. And gosh, we need it more than ever. And maybe, maybe that should just be my goal is like, let's just create a resurgence. Like, let's get it back. We need to know that there's still heart and soul and we can still laugh because how else are we going to get through these times? My gosh. Well, I mean, it's, it's also, I feel like a nice uh, coincidence too, that spin city was on ABC. uh, And I feel like ABC is like the one network that's sort of done that with Abbott elementary. I mean, everyone, I feel like, I feel like people enjoy that so much because it is a classic sitcom that feels spin city in that way. It's like, you love every character on the show and it's not, you know, it's not a dark cable comedy at all. Right. But it's also, yeah, I totally agree with you because, but it's also representing something that like, 
we really want and need to see. And it feels very representative of a, a big piece of culture, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's important. And I think it, Abbott Elementary is reminding us that we have the opportunity to, you know, portray big aspects of culture that haven't necessarily been shown on TV before in this way, but do so um, in a heartful, funny way. And I'm so happy that that show exists because you're right. And because Spin City was sort of, you know, doing that from the political standpoint too, you mm -hmm. know, trying to kind of get under the sort of silliness of New York politics. Yeah. Um, we watching also, a lot know. of those stories are like the the top the topics that the they do cover are very sort of like they're about actual politics. So I lo I love rewatching yeah. the show. Yeah, I love that. I should rewatch it. I haven't seen it in years. <laughs> you should. You're great. Everyone's great in that. <laughs> uh, I have a I question. A I have a question about your theater background um, because it's interesting that you know like you know when when you go to like look at your credits online um you have your film you have your tv and then it's also like you were on what like 15 albums because you did nashville uh oh, wow. and you know is is that is singing and like performing something you really enjoy and would you want to do that again like and maybe something like in an on stage form i want to say that also like i adore nashville and um especially oh, um you. one of my very close friends angelina burnett is um t-bone burnett's daughter and uh kelly Corey's her stepmom and so when no the show way. when the show was first starting um angelina was constantly telling me that this show is going to be it it's going to be great and you know i think like the the first season of nashville is like one of the perfect first seasons of television and just like the music the stories the everything was just really great oh my gosh thank you so much well um yeah no i it's funny i've been having dreams about singing on stage lately because it's it's, it's very scary for me i have to admit mm. like that was i'm so grateful that i had the experience of doing nashville for so many reasons i mean it really to to have the experience of working with T Bone Burnett and and all the other amazing producers that we worked with, and the incredible songwriters that we worked with, all of these mm. Nashville based songwriters who were just I, I learned so much from them, and it was really for me personally wonderful to be able to challenge myself to to sing like that and to learn how you record a song which I'd never done before and. And then performing on stage and what that's, you know, how, how you, how you really, really do that. Um, but it, I have to say, it also made me really just have such even more enormous respect for the people who just do it brilliantly. And I'm kind of like, I don't know that I'm, br I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a world where I do it, I can do it well, and I can do it from a real storytelling standpoint. But I, oh, I just have such regard for the ones who just can get on stage and like make music come to life and are just like, and this, you know, this voice just comes out of their body and I'm just like, ah. So to answer your question, all that being said, that's all my fear. I would still love to do it again if it was just the right circumstance. And 
you know, I've actually been offered a few musicals. I, I what I really, really want to do is to do a Broadway show. I've never done a Broadway show in my whole life. Never, never mm. been on Broadway. Ooh. And I want to so badly. Um, I mean, that was really always such a dream. And then I kind of veered into mm. TV and film. But, you know, I really, really want to have the opportunity to do that. And we I've would be seated. Few... We'd be there. Yes, we would. So please, you'd be you'd be selling out tickets, okay? Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, from your lips to God's ears, but you know, I I think I just and I did actually get offered um, a few things that were so exciting to consider doing, but um, it was at a time it was kind of right after Nashville, and uh, you know, I have I'm I'm a single mom of uh, my son and. It, so it really would mean kind of displacing him and figuring that out. So I, I kind of, I think I'm not going to be able to do Broadway. I don't know. I have to figure it out because he's in school now. He's 11. Mm. He's got his own, you know, now I'm working with this whole other agenda. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe I'll get back there. I mean, I no, not maybe. I will get back there. I'm just not sure when. Now, this is not me asking what you will do once you get to the stage, but do you have a particular favorite Broadway show? Well, I always wanted to do, um, I always wanted to play Maggie the Cat and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, and I'm, I'm, we were just talking about Paul Newman. It's such a fun movie still. I yeah. know. I, I mean, that was always my dream. And now I'm like, oh, no, am I too old to do that now? I might be too old to do it. But I'm not sure. I can still hold the dream. But that would be, you know, or anything like Tennessee Williams, Eugene. Like, I love all that. You know. Ooh, we love you getting into a Geraldine Page moment. Yes, right, let's get let's some sweet that. bird, etc. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Come on, summer and smoke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I am also intrigued too. You know, by your um, how how much you've worked with you know like Ryan Murphy, like in the American Horror Story universe. Do do you enjoy horror as well, or is this something where you're like? This is just like a fun diversion, but I I, I don't really get into all of this. Because the first season of American Horror Story, Murder House, is terrifying. Terrifying? Are you kidding? No, I don't like horror. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't watch it. I don't. I don't. That was another one. I, I don't know. I always, I really do. I always try to sort of like challenge myself in some way. Every, every every role that I choose, I'm like, okay, where's the challenge here? But, you know, that one, it's not that I like horror, but I really appreciate Ryan Murphy's uh, way of taking a genre that we all know and recognize and have seen over and over again and making it feel like it's something we haven't seen before or it's something that we haven't ever seen quite like this. And so what was exciting to me about that, because I'm not particularly a huge horror fan, was being a part of something where Ryan was literally reimagining what, or imagining for the first time, because I don't think we've ever really had a horror TV show of quite, that that had quite that, um, you know, sort of style to it. And, um, it's exciting to be a part and, you know, doing the first season with him of that because it was really just 
watching, watching and also helping to create his brainchild coming to life. Um, and, uh, that was really cool. And I'm like, Oh, so this is, this is how horror can be. And this is how horror can look on TV and sort of like stretching outside the box of what had been done in the past in terms of horror on television. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but then I, and I think he, I think Ryan does that with everything that he would, you know, that's why I, I'll always want to work with him. You know, I mean, listen, now he's so busy and he's got so many shows on the air. I feel really grateful that I was able to hack in. It's because in that moment, he just finished doing Glee and American Horror Story was his next big, like, he was so excited about it. And it was like, his new baby, you know? And so it really, we really felt like we were part of something just beginning and the real creation of it. Um, and now, you know, Ryan has got so many things going on. I just wonder, I, you know, I wonder if it all still feels this, that it has that much, that much of his, you know, sort of like brain and, um, vision in it, you know, but I, 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 he still keeps making amazing things and I, I just love that about him. I think that he's so prolific and, mm -hmm. uh, and always has really exciting ideas. Mm -hmm. Your first season yeah. also was opposite my favorite TV actor, by the way, Dylan McDermott. Uh, I mean, speaking oh, of, I love yeah. Dylan. Did you know him from that? Cause the practice was on ABC when Spin City was. No, but I, you know what, we had not, I don't think we had ever met. And, you know, what, what people don't know about Dylan is that he's hilarious. Like, he's so funny. And like, you think like, oh, he's this, you know, handsome, handsome, sort of smoldering dude, you know, but um, he's a really, really funny guy. And we ended up having such a good time. Um, and you know, it's, it's also, again, going back to humor, which I think is just always the baseline, most important thing and everything, but like, especially doing horror and some of the like really kind of bleak subject matter that we were dealing with on that show to be able to like, to work with somebody who at, you know, has always has a, a twinkle in his eye and is always, um, you know, and always has a sense of humor makes all the difference. And I think makes the intensity of the horror almost better because you can like, you can, you can go there because then you can always go to the other side as well. You know? Well, I just want to thank you once again for being here. I want to thank you for absolutely roasting Alexandra Daddario in that scene on the white Lotus, which was <laughs> unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> and I, as by the way, a, f a former like blogger and writer myself, like I, I was Alexander Daddario in that scene. I was like, here comes somebody reading my list. I wrote about them being like, oh, I remember what you said. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. I bet. I bet. I know. See, be nice, people. Be nice. You know, people, people absolutely fucking love that scene. And I think uh, lastly, I just want to ask, like, Mike White is another creator who. I think is an icon. Uh, I mean, first of all, Lewis and I oh, yeah. are big Survivor fans too, so it's weird that he's great at two things. Um, but his seemingly unrelated. Yeah, yeah, his mind is just so from enlightened to you know um, the you know canceled series I always bring up on this show, Pasadena, uh, which I love. But like this show 
What was it like getting inside of, I guess, just Mike White's mind and his like, what's his sensibility like um, when you're working with him and creating a character? Well, you know, I mean, that's that was the reason why, for sure. Like, I I had worked with Mike before on Beatrice at dinner, so I had already mm-hmm. had the opportunity, and then and um, Miguel Arteta directed that, and they they had um, collaborated before, uh, and so it's even though Mike directed all of White Lotus, but um, even even working with Mike as writer and Miguel as a director on Beatrice at dinner it still felt like because Miguel and Mike are so closely connected, it felt like we were still really getting inside his brain. And it is such getting, being able to work with Mike White and really, really get explore and give dimension to his characters. It it feels like, it makes you smarter. <laughs> like it feels, it feels as though he allows for the opportunity to, he like adds another dimension to the world. Like he adds another dimension to the world and he adds another dimension to like human characters. I think, you know, um, I just think because he's so, he has such a gift for observation. And so, um, like he just every every single character, and by the way, I think that's why so many of the actors on White Lotus were nominated because every single character is is written with such detail, and and there are so many you can look at each character from so many different perspectives, and each character has its own individual place in the culture and is is recognizable in some way and it's it is very rare to really really be able to do that um with every single character and then to do to actually have the whole overview of the show also have so many different levels and so much dimension to it and so i think i think what mike is able to do is extremely rare and as an actor, I just will always jump whenever he wants me to, whenever he, you know, gives me the gift of like saying, I see you for this role. Um, and for audiences, you know, I think like he's, Mike White is always going to have something to say and he's not going to spoon feed it to you. He's going to show you, he's going to show it to you in really incredible ways and with these really incredible characters. You know what? I it's not that I want anything from Laura Dern's performance in Enlightened to be different, but I would have liked to see the Connie Britton take on Enlightened. I wonder how oh! that would have gone. <laughs> Me too, by the way. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Laura's amazing, but I that is that was a great role. And again, like, you know, we we we're just fortunate when I feel so fortunate whenever I get to work with somebody, and I've been very fortunate in my career who has that kind of vision, you know. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. We, you know, we don't, we don't always just get icons in our midst, you know, but every once in a while they come on through and then oh they thrill gosh. us as much as we know they can thrill us. And you have certainly done that with this conversation. So thank you, you so are much. So sweet. Well, it is so my pleasure. And I just love being able to talk about all this stuff because, you know, I, I wake up every day and I'm so 
grateful that I get to do what I get to do. And I'm so happy about it, you know? So I, I love being able to talk to you guys and thank you for appreciating it so much. Mm, Thank you for being here. Yeah. The White Lotus is out now on HBO Max and watch the Emmys on September 12th because you know we'll be talking about them. Up next, a discussion about Anne Heche. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Anne Heche passed away over the weekend at age 53 following a fiery car garage a week prior. Her family released a statement, We have lost a bright light, a kind and most joyful soul, a loving mother, and a loyal friend. Anne will be deeply missed, but she lives on through her beautiful sons, her iconic body of work, and her passionate advocacy. Um, We're here to talk about her iconic body of work. And honestly... Anne H, I feel like, is a person we brought up before, uh, obviously, but it wasn't until um, the accident a week ago uh, that I really started thinking about, you know, her filmography. And it's really fucking good, even if it feels weirdly like we didn't get enough of her. Right. Well, she's somebody who had like a, a, a short but productive Vogue period where she was in movies like Donnie Brasco and Wag the Dog and Six Days, Seven Nights. Like, we really got a lot out of her in a short period of time, and she was in lots of good movies after that, too, like Birth. That's a performance I'm sure we'll get into here. Uh, but I know you didn't leave um, out. I know what you did last summer. Oh, please. I think that she's the best <laughs> performance in that movie. She Not is. that... Not that anybody's coming out of that movie with anything other than a Saturn nomination, but she, <laughs> no, she really is like a frightening, it's, it's a good character because they happen upon her and they want information about the brother, right? Mm. And, uh, and we're like, what does she know? Is she onto them? And Anne Heche has that, routinely in movies, has that uneasy, tense feeling, fingers outstretched. I think I've said before on this podcast, I called her acting, don't touch me acting, (laughs) where, you know, there's just a feeling of like general radioactivity about everything Mm. she does and um, a tenseness that I happen to associate with 70s actresses, Mm. you know, somebody who they have a resting rage in a lot of what they do. Reminds me of Jane Fonda on a lot of her best movies, for example. I mean, she's Anne Heche is very um, the embodiment of an actor who uh, grew up watching Clue. Yes, right. No, and and that's uh, 
yeah, yeah, that level of drama and urgency and whatever she does. Actually, bizarrely, and I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh, I, I, when I was a, a a reporter, I can't believe I got to call myself was a reporter, but that's what I was a, a blogger. Pardon me for a movie website. <laughs> I went to some event sometime, and Anne Hayes was one of the people walking in, and you know, at these weird, you know, PR laden events. You get a couple of questions with people and sometimes they're, you know, fun. I mean, like you, you write it up and it turns into nothing or turns into something, you know, it's like a crapshoot. But anyway, and Hayes was there and uh, we did a segment at my website called uh, My Favorite Scene, where we would mm. ask people what their favorite movie scene was. And a lot of the times it was actually pretty illuminating. Like people always come up with something right away. For instance, um, our friend Kyle Buchanan, who has guest hosted on Keep It a number of times, once interviewed the cast of American Idol from that year, which was the Adam Lambert, Chris Allen year. And he said to me, he goes, I'm going to get one question with the cast and I'm going to ask what their favorite movie scene is. And I know Adam Lambert is going to say his favorite movie scene is in Velvet Goldmine when that singer is dancing on stage pretending to jack off with sequins. And lo and behold, he was fucking right. He literally got it. So anyway, it was like this weird um, litmus test for, mm -hmm. you know, celebrities. Like, what what do they retain? And I was talking to Anne Hayes. We should steal that, by the way. Bring that, isn't that great? Movie line's, uh, yeah. movie line's dead. No, it's certainly not they, around. They won't I'm certainly know. not writing yeah, freelance articles for it or whatever. <laughs> um, and Anne Hayes takes a moment and she goes, Ellen Barkin and Sea of Love. And mm. a couple of things strike me about that. One, what a totally Anne Hayes performance in a movie that is pre-Anne Hayes' time. So good on Anne Hayes. And two, that's obviously a movie that stars Al Pacino. And then later, Anne Hayes gets this star-making moment in Donnie Brasco. So mm -hmm. I was like super happy for her that that was the movie she had picked. But um, uh, uh, we'll obviously talk about her performances now. There have been so many awesome recollections of Wait, what's Anne yours, Hayes by the on way? My favorite movies. Honestly, it's really hard. Routinely, if at like from high school up until like ten years ago, I would probably say my favorite scene is when Grace Kelly in Rear Window decides she's not going to be just like Jimmy Stewart's little henchman anymore, and she decides to climb up into Raymond Burr's apartment herself, and she becomes like the Tomb Raider bad bitch we didn't know she could be. Mm -hmm. You know that to me is a and, and like. I, I have lots of opinions about that, but it's a very Madonna moment, right? Like your eyes are fixed on me anyway. Well, now I'm going to control the narrative. Now I'm not just your like sexy play thing. I'm now going to run the whole show. Um, anyway, uh, it's Grace Kelly is obviously amazing mm. in that movie as our Jimmy Stewart. And I love, Thelma I love what that. Would you say? That's a, that's very you. I love that. Mine is, um, mine is the end of Heather's when Christian mm. Slater, when Christian Slater blows up and you, you're like, um, you know, Veronica, um, Winona Ryder has been through all the shit with him. And as he as the bomb is strapped to him, um, she pulls out her cigarette. And then when the bomb goes off, it lights the cigarette as she's just smoking it. I love that. Scene. Yes. Oh, also, like Winona was somebody where if you cast her for the exact right thing she was supposed to do, she was utterly irreplaceable. And that's totally one of right. those. And then you go right to the Shannon Doherty with the like, um, Veronica, you look like hell. Thanks, I just got back. And then she takes Shannon Doherty's. Uh, <laughs> Great line. Yeah. Uh, then she takes Shannon Doherty's red scrunchie and puts it on. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, you're right. We don't really have a second one of Heather's, much as we have tried. Mm. Um, uh, 
Uh, I rewatched the movie Six Days, Seven Nights a couple days ago. Have you seen it? Iconic film. I- Ivan Reitman? Isn't that bizarre? It is Ivan Reitman. The several things about this movie shocked me uh, to be reacquainted with. One, Allison Janney is a key player in it. When, you know, this is when she's about to come up in West Wing and be in every movie. And this was the, you know, start of that. Mm-hmm. But um, it's what's crazy to me is Harrison Ford is obviously the her romantic interest in this. They he's get stranded so, on an he's island. He's so good in this. He's also so hot. Oh, yeah, I he's hot. love Harrison What's, Ford cr- in this movie and Hollywood Homicide with uh, Josh Hartnett. I've mentioned that on the show before, too. But I think like these are two like iconic, underrated Harrison Ford films. I'm going to throw in another one. Do you know what he's fucking awesome in? The Age of Adeline. I have not seen that yet, but it just got added to Netflix. Fucking belie- you will not <laughs> fucking believe what that movie is. And I mean, all you need to know about the craziness of that movie is that Blake Lively plays Ellen Burstyn's mother. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Are you there? Are you in it? I'm going to go start yeah. it now, actually. You can finish this on your own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. But uh, Harrison Ford in this movie, it's so crazy to me. That role would so, one year later, be Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. And you don't think of them as people who are like trade offy actors, but really it's the the same kind of charm, the rakishness, the uh, ruggedness. But um, Anne in that movie plays somebody who's, you know, too uptight. And like everybody in the late 90s works at a magazine. And, uh, you know, she has to like figure out how to get along with this um, ne'er do well man. And it's it's so hokey, but they play it so well. And you, she's just somebody whose energy is so strange for a rom-com because she is so spiky and so perturbed seeming. And mm-hmm. to see that in, in a leading performance is just a, a, a rare treat. You know, it, it, she's not going for charm ever. She she's she's letting her sort of uh, uh, gruffness shine through at every moment. No shade, but the bad version of this film would star Taya Leone. Right. Well, also, that's that's speaking of spiky. Let's talk about haircuts. They're in the same universe there. Yeah. Um, one thing I was revisiting was um, some scenes of Anne Hayes from her first big role playing twins Vicky Hudson and Marley Love on the uh, NBC soap opera Another World, which used to air uh, alongside Days of Our Lives. Uh, and when you watch her on this, first of all, she's playing twins. And she is playing in scenes like opposite herself a lot. And the way that they feel like two completely different people, but yet still Anne Hayes. One of them is more like reserved uh, and sort of like has their life together. And the other one is sort of like, um, you know, like a spoiled, like rich girl who's always scheming um, and trying to steal um, her sister's man. But she is so good in the series and what i loved about it i have it, never seen this yeah, i need to watch it yeah uh she's so good in it and also like got so many accolades um while she was on the series uh and then like obviously like she left um to become a star but she's also a person who like never um looked down on that era of her career and like always sort of like revered another world and i believe she even like came back once 
Oh, right. That I think that's correct. Um, there was an awesome recollection of somebody who worked with her on the show Men in Trees, mm. uh, saying great like, "Great oh, show." Always. <laughs> I've never seen it. I, I I don't. I barely even remember it. I know Anne Hache was on it, but this uh, uh, actress was talking about how she routinely was asked what it was like to work with her, and there was always an air of suspicion and tee-hee about the question when people asked. And she goes, Anne was a fucking genius, never missed a cue. Like, she, she, the way she talked about her was if Anne almost had a photographic memory. Like, she never missed a line, was always prepared and always uh, kind. In fact, I posted something about um, Anne Heche on Twitter recently, and somebody replied to me that they were on the set uh, of something she filmed, I think for television, and an actor was having a panic attack because he couldn't nail a scene with Anne Heche. And the director was yelling at the actor and Anne Heche diverted his attention, just said, we'll get it. You're just with me. Don't worry about him. And to know that there is just that layer of kindness and understanding about her, it breaks my heart, honestly, because so much of the narrative around Anne Heche over the years was that she was crazy Mm -hmm. and was that um, it, it, it was mainly funny. In fact, I remember... When 9-11 happened, get ready, Jay Leno, when he finally came back on the air, because obviously all those shows took time off, Jay Leno said, can you believe that before this, the top story in the news was Anne Heche? <laughs> and, at the, you know, that was her talking, but probably her memoir at the time, Call Me Crazy. Obviously, her breakup with Ellen was, you know, all over the headlines at the time. But we really treated her like because she had mental health issues, like she was taking up too much space and basically didn't deserve to be famous and it's just so it's it's so strange it's just a narrative i don't associate with any man first of all and then secondly she just went so underappreciated for strange reasons and by the way she brilliantly articulates so much of what she has gone through in her memoir which includes a unbelievably painful childhood she was uh, abused by her father who eventually died of aids uh her brother was killed uh, uh, in a car accident, I believe. And she's just one of those people who persevered and persevered until, you know, she didn't. And, uh, uh, I, I can't believe she had the grisly end she did, but it does not change what I think of Anne Hayes, which is that she fucking ruled. And there's no, there's nobody else who gave performances like that. So consistently, um, I'll add one more thing to that, which is, you know, we talk a lot about being obsessed with actors and actresses on the show. And sometimes what we like about them is that they're chameleons mm-hmm. that, you know, like somebody like Meryl will play one thing and then she'll play the opposite of that thing. And then she'll play something else even stranger. But there's another kind of actor, kind of like Sandy Dennis, who's on the wall behind me, where they always bring a certain quality and they can't make up that quality and they can't disavow that quality, even if they tried. And you want to see that again and again, because it's rare. And Anne Heche was one of those people. Whenever she was on the screen, there was like, you you couldn't write this thing into a script. You just bring it. Mm-hmm. And um, I will miss that thing. She um, was so consistent and generous in giving it to us. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm grateful for her television era. Like Men in Trees, I watched that. I watched Hung. She was great on Everwood, Nip Tuck, like, you know, she, lots Al, of great Allie McBeal, you know, like she was just great in those shows, too, and sort of elevated that Tony nominee, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know what I watched for um, the first time after she passed um, was Catfight, her film with Sandra Oh. With Sandra Oh. Which yes. is amazing, actually. Tell it, me what it is. Yeah. So uh, it's from like Onur Tukel, uh, like a Turkish-American director, uh, and it's. 
it's this weird sort of like black comedy where Anne Heche is uh, a lesbian. She's involved with uh, Alicia Silverstone, who gives an amazing performance in this too. Uh, uh, Anne Heche and Sandra Oh both knew each other from college. And Sandra Oh um, is sort of like this rich trophy wife now. And her husband um, does like military contracts. Her husband is Damon Young, uh, who played uh, Lisa Kudrow's husband on uh, The Comeback. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and he's so good at playing sort of like a uh, character who's f- funny on the outside, but you realize he's sort of like kind of an asshole to his wife. Yeah. yeah. No, you, you literally brought up that character and I like shuddered a little bit. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he's like he does like military contracts and Sandra Oh is wealthy and Anne Hage is a struggling artist. Uh, and they run into each other at this party that um, Anne Heche is catering for Sandra O's husband, uh, and they sort of go back and forth about their lives because Sandra O's son um, wants to be an artist, uh, and she like degrades it every time, every chance she gets, and she's like, "Oh, you're still doing that to Anne Heche," and basically like, said they end up in a hallway um, in the apartment building, and punch each other in the face and it turns into a full out brawl and you know the first twist is that like sandra O gets knocked out um <laughs> Good and Lord. then the film jumps to two years later where sandra O wakes up out of a coma oh my god okay i need to watch th- it's insane that i haven't seen there this. are three intense cat fights in this film and it's it's so fucking funny Wow. And, and that's pre-Killing Eve, Sandra O oh, too. Yeah. So she was sort of warming up. It's yeah. funny, but also they're both actors like this, right? Like, you know what you're going to get from them. And it's this 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 weird ability to just sort of like um, take on um, a role that's sort of like both of these women are unlikable. Um, but they have this um, weird sort of ability to make these unlikable women um relatable and funny and Anna Heche has never been more like intense um and like you know emotionally just like there than she is in like this film and you know like there's the moment you know where like she's poor and struggling but then she gets to play rich and on top of the world um and just like really she's like really gets to be a cunt in this film basically and so does Sandra Oh they both play like cunts very well in this film um, so, oh, that's so thrilling. Yeah. Um, uh, we brought up Birth before, which is, if, if you know any Nicole Kidman stan, Birth is sort of like what Black Swan is to Natalie Portman. Mm. It's in, in that it, it it gives you as much intensity as possible. It's a strange movie, kind of a thriller. You're kind of wondering what's real and what's not. And Anne Heche has a supporting role in it. And all I can say is she almost steals the movie from Nicole, who is downright devastating in it. If you've not seen that, I, I would almost call that the definitive Anne Heche performance. So uh, check that out. I just want to say also, Anne Heche was like on Dancing with the Stars a couple years ago. This has the feeling of the Whitney Houston death and that you sort of thought the, the worst of it was over. But then, you know, like we thought she had recovered, you know, she, Whitney gets the comeback album and then mm-hmm. um, we see her and she seems, you know, up on her feet. And, and, but then, of course, you know, things get in the way or things change or whatever and it's just there's that extra heartbreak to it like oh god i thought you know we had seen through the worst of it but and by know. the and by the worst of it of course you mean um playing marion crane and gus van sant's shot by shot <laughs> remake of psycho 
<laughs> I mean, not a bad casting idea for Marion Crane. Uh, but what a weird! I was just looking at stills from that recently. I had forgotten a weird had put William H Macy in that. He movie. plays the um, uh, uh, Martin Balsam character. Yeah, Vince Vaughn. Why as Vince Perkins Vaughn? Why was Vince Vaughn? So yeah. weird, and it's especially weird coming from a faggot like Gus Van Sant. Because it's like, right. it's like, it what, no what, what were you trying to do in this film? I like, I have, I have so many questions about this film. Because uh, you know, it's it's actually. I feel like I saw this psycho first. Which is possible because it was certainly extremely hyped at the time. Yeah. Um, it came out in 98. I just want to say about Gus Van Sant in general, routinely in a movie, he'll make a couple of choices where I'm like, why? Namely, I saw Goodwill Hunting recently and in it, like, you know how Elliot Smith songs go throughout that movie? Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a movie about rowdy men getting into fights and, and occasionally, occasionally having a sensitive moment. To hear Elliot Smith's moody ass like between scenes makes no sense. I don't know why he chose him. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 an he's a, he's a director I love, but also like weird, baffling choices sometimes. Like Elephant. Yeah, I like. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Promised um, Land. Yeah. Also, one last thing about Catfight. Um, Dylan Baker's in it as like the coma doctor uh and he's so fucking funny in it and that just reminds me that um during um our what we were consuming thing i neglected to bring up the cbs show which is now paramount show evil which is people love that it's one of the best fucking shows on tv so people should watch that too all right all right i'll get on that anyway uh nh great one of a kind thank god we had her my god yeah Uh, all right when we're back keep it And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, what's yours? Well, as you know, I've only heard of two pop culture topics, Jeopardy and Madonna. (laughs) I've chosen to talk about one of them. Uh, As we record this, it's uh, Madonna's 64th birthday. It's also, of course, whose birthday? Whose 64th birthday? Angela Bassett's. Very good. See? You 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 would be on pop culture Jeopardy. See, yeah. Happy sixty fourth to the. I'm both. sure they're celebrating together. A... Yes, <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm trying to think of a reason they would have to interact. Maybe they were at some Oscars at some point together. At any rate, um, Madonna's birthday. I thought I would do a Madonna themed keep it, um, keep it to people who can still only stand to say about Madonna she's a good businesswoman. I you may as well call her a liar and a thief. I'm sorry. It's it's just not a compliment enough for what she has done, for how active she has been in shaping pop music, for how active she has been in reshaping the idea of being a celebrity. Truly, you know, we had people like Elvis Presley before her, but nobody took the reins of what it is to be famous and say, oh, I'm actually going to do this, this, and this with this level of fame also. I'm also going to continue to be as provocative as possible as in your face and articulate about what I'm doing as I titillate and occasionally patronize the men around me. I continue to say about Madonna that the greatest and gayest thing about her is that she loves men and laughs at men. And that she did that on such a gigantic scale, you know, that she could be that Mae West-like in such a, uh, you know, an uh, MTV environment, in, in, in an era awash with images. She still popped with how truthfully... Um, 
rad and righteous she was at all times. Uh, obviously, she has some, shall we say, missteps in recent years. Um, but like, it, it was never always going to be on the rails with Madonna, and I appreciate that too. So I just want to say, when you call, when you say that somebody is like a good businesswoman, first of all, you did not come up with that compliment yourself. You heard that from like some VH1 special from 25 years ago. So stop pretending it's like something. It's like when people say about gay men, well, they have such good taste. Yeah, I know you heard somebody else say that. I want to know what you think though. And uh, at any rate, it's just not that deep a compliment. It's not that impressive to say. And she's way more important than that. Who, is, who, so, is, who, who called Madonna a good businesswoman? <laughs> Stop reading Fast Company. <laughs> you know, it just feels like something that men say begrudgingly. Wow, she really like controlled her image and um, really made some good decisions. No, she fucking ruled and we liked watching her. Come on. Speaking yeah. I mean, we talked about Nikki already in this episode. Their, their song, um, I Don't Give a off of mdna yeah. um which i just listened to recently horrible album. nobody's best moment horrible horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible <laughs> album. My, my hot take is that i think that hard candy is aged better than mdna i definitely agree with that i also feel like hard candy is maybe an album where all the songs were basically just given to her yeah because it doesn't feel like it does i'm not sensing madonna authorship on the lyrics and i'm just gonna say you know when you're getting that. L- they, I mean, listen, they they sound like Pharrell and Timbaland's like like blackout B sides. Yes, right. That's exactly what <laughs> yeah. it was. I'm sure it's what it was. Uh, but on the I don't give a. That's where Nikki um, reuses the um, Jay Z line. Like I'm not a businessman. I'm a business, comma man. And on that mm. one, Nikki says, "I'm not a businesswoman. I'm a business." I'm a woman, and I'm known for giving bitches the business woman. Iconic line on a Madonna song. Yeah. No, by the way, she sounds great on uh, that song. I mean, Nikki obviously has countless underrated verses. Uh, Even her, um, I I enjoyed her Super Bowl antics, too. L-U-V Madonna. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, all right. So, my keep it this week goes to um, Marlo Hampton on The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Okay, uh, I'm a get- show I have seen a couple episodes of. Go ahead. I'm getting back into reality. Um, now, enough talking about scripted. Uh, but yeah. Marlo Hampton uh, is... She's been a friend of on The Real Housewives of Atlanta for years, you know, and a friend of is someone who's not in the main cast, uh, but they show up from time to time. You know, it always says, like, friend of Nini, you know, like that's sort of like how she uh, started initially on the show. Uh, She first actually came on because she was dating a football player who was one of Nini's exes. And so she was there to like to create drama. And she's always given us like iconic moments on the show, but never had a peach, Um, a peach on like Mm. uh, the thing that they, you know, all the housewives hold something in their opening credits in Atlanta. They hold a peach, obviously. Um, She never had it until this season. And I think that this is the unfortunate thing of be careful what you wish for, because she always created conflict Mm -hmm. when she was a friend of on the show. And now she's on the show with a peach and she's just creating like unnecessary conflict with people without creating genuine connections. And it's sort of boring. And it's also one of the darkest storylines i've ever seen because she you know has taken in her two nephews um on the show because her sister's incarcerated um 
there's a certain period where she like it becomes too much for her and she gives her nephews to her other sister to take care of um and the characters who do question you know her like giving away her nephews uh get snapped at and i just it feels sort of dark and almost like she used um her relationship with her nephews to get on the show um to make herself seem more three-dimensional rather than just you know Mm. a fashionista um with mysterious ways of getting money everyone on the show for years has sort of insinuated that it's just like rich old white men who give her money uh and she's brought a couple on the show before but the nephews started out as a really sweet story and then she gave them away uh and it's it's weird seeing her like get aston martins for um group trips so you know like um be like living it up in jamaica on this cast trip right now um and it's really things where it's just like okay like her nephews you know have like the problems that most teenagers do they're not doing their homework you know or they're like you know like talking back and it's you know it's just if, if you weren't ready to um taking your nephews is one thing but if you you did it on a national scale um, and now I feel like it's given a lot of embarrassment um, to them publicly just for a storyline. So I'm not happy Marlo got, got her peach and I need it snatched back. Um, I feel like uncomfortably dark is a tone that Real Housewives cannot handle. I would prefer they stay away from that. Yeah. You, the awkwardness <laughs> of two. Uh, yeah, we're here for like some light laughs, generally speaking. Yeah. I mean, stay away from Beverly Hills then. <laughs> right <laughs> there's yeah. been, the there's been suicides yeah. and abuse yeah and uh oh salt lake city <laughs> yeah i am i am also just constantly baffled by the fact that like i still find jen shaw likable and she swindled money from old people like literally preyed on right. them uh and admitted to it now she you know she pled guilty but i i was i'm, I'm also Part of me is also like, you know, who do those old people vote for? Right. Let's find that out. Sure. I'm sure she swindled some bad old people. Who I'm trying to think of a, a Georgia celebrity who should be on Real Houses of Atlanta. Well, once upon a time, you know, uh, Jane Fonda lived in Atlanta when she lived with Ted Turner. Mm. And let's if she joined that cast, uh, you know, I mean, like Jane's still up and doing projects and having a good time. I mean, I think she would slay on that show. I mean, listen, I think she's still eligible. Jamie Lee Curtis appeared on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I'm sure you've seen that clip. Oh, right. Yes, yeah. I had forgotten I have. Yeah, uh, and honestly, this is this is a random tangent. I was thinking about how like these shows, especially like, can offer like a second life for um, you know a formerly famous um, woman, or like they would catch them at the right moment, um, like in a scandal, like it's done with Jen Shaw and like Erica Jane, Teresa Giudice. Tammy Faye Baker, if Real Housewives was around back then, would have been the perfect person to have joined the cast after her husband went to prison. Well, that's an interesting conundrum because I find that Tammy Faye Baker is so innocent, but also, I mean, I mean, within reason, as far as we know, but like. I wonder how she would interact with like people who are legitimately sassy. Would that break her immediately? I mean, I'll tell you what she would do. She would cry. So. <laughs> she'd, pro- she'd probably be she'd probably be the Kim Richards, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, she 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 wouldn't be able to take it, and she would probably just like combust on TV. 
Also, by the way, I want to say something that you just reminded me of. Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the few people that I would compare to Anne Heche in that there was uh, like they the, in the 90s, they were both given movies to front, occasionally romantic leads. And there was just like a, you know, a crispness and a a, a curtness to the way they handled things, which I don't know. Again, we, I don't think we have that person anymore. I had not thought to compare those two until you just brought up that name. But anyway, I think that's a good ancillary for her. You know, it's so interesting thinking about Jamie Lee Curtis, too, as like a scream queen and then her 90s career, mostly because obviously when women age in Hollywood, they're sort of like put out to pasture. Uh, and she's continued to have a healthy career uh, thanks to also being a scream queen in Halloween. But, you know, like I think of the, I think of scream where, you know, they're watching the scene in Halloween there and, you know, it's like uh, they're talking about, do we get to see Jamie's breasts, you know? And it's like, it's while remembering true lies, Jamie Lee Curtis, where it's just mm -hmm. like sexy, like the the, the, the right. I and, mean and, that that weird funny. that yeah. weird striptease scene uh, in it that she was um, made to do, but it's like that was Jamie Lee Curtis then, just like hot. Right. Nope she she did every kind of movie. You know, I mean, she was in a, a Fish Called Wanda. You know, and then of course her best role is Knives Out. Of course, <laughs> which. <laughs> You're a bigger fan than I. I do enjoy it, but uh, I, I just my favorite performance in that is Chris Plummer. Oh yeah, obviously icon. Uh, anyway, that's our show this week. Thank you to Connie it Britton. Was a whole lot of show. Thank you for yeah. Thank you to Connie Britton for joining us. We'll see you next week. Keep it is a crooked media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nara Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for our production support every week. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com.